Today I will speak about the preservation of the marine environment. The seas are subject to a wide variety of uses, direct use of ocean resources has a long history, especially in the areas of navigation, fisheries, military activities and waste disposal. More recently, the oceans and the seabed are used for the generation of energy to explore and exploit minerals as well as hydrocarbons and to, reduce, uh, and to conduct marine scientific research. The objective of all attempts to preserve the marine environment is to ensure the compatibility of all such or future uses and that they are in their totality sustainable. Oceans are a decisive factor for the world's climate and this adds an additional feature to the regime on the preservation of the marine environment. Finally, attempts are made to protect the intrinsic value of the marine environment. International efforts at protecting the marine environment date back to the 60s or the early 70s. The London Dumping Convention of 1973 was an early multilateral effort in this regard. In the wake of the Torrey Canyon accident of 1967, growing concern over ship-based and land-based marine pollution in the North Sea and the Baltic Sea regions led to several multilateral conventions between the coastal states concerned from the 1969 Bonn Agreement for cooperation in dealing with pollution of the North Sea bar oil and the 1972 Oslo Convention for the prevention of marine pollution by dumping from ships and aircraft to the 1974 Paris Convention on the prevention of marine pollution from land-based sources, the 1974 Helsinki Convention on the protection of the marine environment of the Baltic Sea area and others. However, a truly universal and comprehensive approach required by the physical nature of the world's hydrosphere only became possible with the successful completion of the third UN conference on the law of the sea in 1982. While the driving force behind UNCLOS III, as it's commonly referred to, and the resulting United Nations Convention on the law of the sea, I'll refer to it as a convention, were primarily economic in nature, namely regarding the allocation of resource exploitation rights, the concern for environmental protection first expressed at the Stockholm Conference 1972 left its mark on the Convention, particularly on its part at 12. The growing awareness that the oceans constitute an exhaustible resource, and that their protection is a common concern of international of the international community of states led to the formulation of the program of action set forth in chapter 17 of agenda 21 adopted at the rio conference the convention on the law of the sea is a legal basis for the protection of the marine environment this instrument has proven capable of accommodating the third in marine environmental lawmaking, both prior and subsequent to the UN Conference on Environment and Development, the so-called Rio Conference. Article 192 and 193 of the Convention are the key provisions obliging states to protect the marine environment and to cooperate with the view to meet this objective. It would be a misconception to assume that the Convention is only concerned with the protection and preservation of the marine environment. In fact, it attempts to strike a balance between protection and preservation of the marine environment and the economic use of the oceans. Therefore, the Convention is one of the very early examples 
or regimes striving for a sustainable use of the oceans, although it does not focus on this principle, which became more dominant in governing international environmental law after the adoption of the Convention. However, the Convention has to be read in conjunction with the results achieved at the Rio Conference, and therefore besides the principle of sustainable development, the principle of intergenerational equity, common but differentiated responsibilities, common concern, the precautionary principle, and the cost internalization, the so-called polluter pace principle, are applicable. Note must be taken of the fact that the Convention does not provide for a definite regime on the protection of the marine environment. It rather establishes some general standards and, most importantly, provides for a functional allocation of jurisdiction, both to prescribe and to enforce marine environmental law. In that respect, the Convention does not pursue a uniform approach, but differentiates between the various uses of the sea referred to above. One of the primary mechanisms for the preservation of the marine environment is the protection of its living resources. The Convention predominantly allocates jurisdictional authority to the various states concerning the management and control of marine living resources and less to international organizations. This approach, however, was not totally successful in itself. Fish stocks are interrelated, which call for a more comprehensive approach than uh, the Convention originally envisaged. Across the world, fisheries, once imagined to be inexhaustible, are showing signs of being overfished or even depleted beyond the means of recovery. Three causes have been identified for being responsible for the dramatic situation of marine living resources. First, bycatch and destructive fishing practices, such as particularly long lines and long nets. Secondly, illegal, unreported and unregulated so-called IUU fishing. There are areas where roughly 85% of the fish is taken illegally and a subsidization of fishing vessels and uh, fishing gear. The fisheries regime of the Convention functions functionally contains two separate sets of rules. The first set is concerned with the distribution of resources for exploitation the second with the management of these resources. The sovereignty that the coastal states enjoy over their territorial waters includes the powers to enact and to enforce regulations concerning fisheries and the conservation of living resources in this area. In the La Bretagne arbitration, However, the majority of the arbitral tribunal stated, by the way, as an obiter dictum, that even in the territorial sea, the coastal state enjoyed only functional jurisdictional powers as enumerated in the Convention. Let me now turn to the exclusive economic zone. In the exclusive economic zone, the coastal state enjoys sovereign rights for the purpose of exploring and exploiting, conserving and managing the living resources. According to Article 61 to 68 of the Convention, the coastal state shall promote their optimum utilization. This is a direct quote. Yet it shall do so without prejudice to Article 61 which sets out management and conservation measures. According to Article 61, Paragraph 1, 
a coastal state shell, and I underline the shell, determine the total allowable catch. Management measures have to protect marine living resources against overexploitation, that's paragraph two, and to maintain and restore populations of harvested species at levels which can produce the maximum sustainable yield. That is paragraph three. Maximum sustainable yield is to be understood as, and I quote, qualified by relevant environmental and economic factors, end of quote, and to, and to be determined, quote, after taking into account the interdependence of stocks, end of quote. Any generally recommended international minimum standards, whether sub-regional, regional or global, are also to be taken into account. This provides the legal basis for standards for sustainable fisheries which have been developed and adopted in the relevant international fora, particularly the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO, to influence decision-making even when not expressed in a legally binding instrument. Such standards are the conduit for new and emerging principles of natural resource management, such as the ecosystem and the, uh, the precautionary approaches. However, setting precise standards and threshold levels for such a critical variables as allowable catch, overexploitation, effects of management measures, optimum uh, utilization, capacity to harvest, and surplus remains scientifically imprecise and therefore very problematic. Let me now turn to the high seas. Conservation and management of the living resources of the high seas is a subject of Articles 116 to 120 of the Convention. Article 116 recognizes that all states has a right for their nationals to engage in fishing on the high seas subject to existing treaty obligations, the rights and duties, as well as interests of coastal states. Article 117 obligates all states, individually and jointly, to take for their respective nationals the measures necessary for the conservation of the living resources of the high seas. Article 118 imposes a correlative duty on states to cooperate in the conservation as well as in the management of the high seas living resources. Article 119 provides technical guidance for states in determining the allowable catch and establishing other conservation measures for the living resources in the high seas. The interpretation of the central term maximum sustainable yield as qualified by environmental and economic factors has been subject to debate. The term is to be interpreted in the same way as it is under Article 61, given that the provisions encompass the same ecological topoi. Remarkably, regional fisheries organizations are not assigned specific functions or competencies in this respect. Enforcement of fishing regulations applicable on the high seas lies primarily with a flag state, which however, is obligated to cooperate with other states in the interest of enforcing international standards. In spite of the efforts undertaken by FAO, the state of affairs remains unsatisfactory, and that's perhaps even an understatement. Many flag states have proven either incapable or unwilling to actively promote and enforce sustainable fisheries. As a result thereof, 
standard setting is moving differently from what the law of the sea convention provides to international organization and enforcement to port states also different from the law of the sea convention a further stage of internationalization was reached through the elaboration of a regimes on certain fish stocks to which i will come in a second the so-called straddling stocks agreement focuses on fish populations that straddle the boundaries of countries exclusive economic zones and the high seas such as for example the cod off canada's atlantic coast and the pollock in the bering sea it also deals with highly migratory species such as for example tuna and swordfish after the ten uh, tendencies to nationalize resources which forms a basis for the fisheries regime of the convention on the law of the sea in the exclusive economic zone the more recent development on the law of the sea is in the recognition that the several uses of the sea have to be seen holistically and internationally and that the competing individualized preference maximization has given way to a longer term social preference maximization the paradigmatic shift has come about in cascading development the main impetus can be seen in chapter 17 of agenda 21 and as to fisheries in particular in the FAO Kyoto Declaration. The United Nations Agreement on Fish Stocks and Highly Migratory Species, uh, straddling fish stocks agreements, states as its primary objective, and I quote, to ensure the long-term conservation and sustainable use of straddling fish stocks and highly migratory fish stocks. The agreement promotes effective management and conservation of high seas resources by establishing inter alia detailed minimum international standards for the conservation and management of straddling fish stocks and highly migratory fish stocks. Ensuring that measures taken for the conservation and management of those stocks in areas under national jurisdiction and in the adjacent high seas are compatible and coherent. The agreement promotes regionalization of fish stocks, conservation and management and relies on regional and sub-regional organizations and arrangements for making and enforcing such standards. To provide states with an incentive to join relevant organizations and arrangements and thus enforce Article 8, Paragraph 3 and 8, Paragraph 4, restricts access to fishery resources under the regulation of regional organization to those states which are members of such an organization or which apply at least its conservation measures. Article 8, Paragraph 5 of that convention takes a duty to pursue cooperation even further. Where no regional organization exists, relevant coastal states and states fishing on the high seas for straddling and highly migratory fish stocks must establish such an organization and participate in its work. Regional organizations and regional arrangements already in place are provided with a blueprint on substantive as well as procedural principles to further the global conservation interest and to render such organizations and arrangements more effective. Article 5 sets forth a number of guiding principles for the management of the covered fish stocks, most notably the precautionary principle, for the application of which Article 6 contains an elaborate blueprint. The general principles stating concern for an ecosystem approach are implemented to Annex 1, which contains detailed provisions on standard requirements for the collection and sharing of data on resources 
and the precautionary approach that requires states to assess the impact of fishing on non-target and associated or dependent species and their environments. The agreement incorporates the dispute settlement mechanism of, uh, of the Law of the Sea Convention. It builds on the important work undertaken by FAO in the field of fisheries, particularly on the Code of Conduct for Responsible Fisheries. The, conduct, uh, the code is voluntary under customary international law and the convention the flag state principle subjects a fishing vessel on the high seas to the exclusive jurisdiction of the state under whose flag it is registered. Article 21 of the Straddling Fish Stocks Agreement represents a far-reaching exception to the flag state principle by allowing enforcement to be carried out within the regulatory area of regional organizations and arrangements by other states. The inspecting state does not need to receive the consent of the flag state. However, it may board and inspect the vessel only for the purpose of pursuing compliance with regional conservation and management measures. The inspecting state may eventually bring the vessel to the nearest port only if there are clear grounds for believing that a vessel has committed a serious violation. In the event that violation of conservation measures are detected, Article 21 requires that evidence be secured and the flag state be notified promptly. The flag state has to indicate whether it will take enforcement actions itself or whether it will authorize the inspecting state to do so. It is generally agreed that classic fish management alone will not be the appropriate answer to the growing world fish crisis. Rather, the already mentioned manifold overcapitalization is reaching from the unemployment of benefits of fishermen to the loans for upgrading fishing gear and boats to enlarged harbor installation contributes to such crisis and needs uh, to be addressed. And this cannot be done in uh, traditional fisheries organizations. Let me now turn to one particular regional fishery organization, namely the Northwest Atlantic Fisheries Organization, which should serve as an illustration for such type of organization and its impact it has or may have on fisheries. It was established through a multilateral convention applying to all fishery resources of the convention area except anadromous species. These are species which return uh, to uh, the freshwater where they have been born, such as salmon or trout. It is for this organization to set the standards and procedures for an effective management of fisheries. Responsibility for implementing agreements on international fisheries usually devolves wholly to the state's parties that gov may, uh, must govern fishing by their own nationals. Some fishery agreements speci specifically provide for the application of criminal penalties or punitive measures in the event of violations. Others expressly require parties to secure compliance, namely by applying sanctions or punishment against other states for breaches or violations of national implementation legislation. Regarding the particularly acute problem as vessels flying the flag of states, not members of the regional or species-oriented organizations in question, action has to be taken, for example, by the Northwest Atlantic Fisheries Organization. According to the scheme, a non-contracting party vessel, which has been cited carrying out fishing activities in uh, the organization's regulatory area, 
or engaged in any transshipment activities with another non-contracting party inside or outside the regulatory area is presumed to undermining of the organization's conservation and enforcement measures. Information regarding such sightings would be transmitted by the NAFUS Secretariat to all contracting parties and to the flag state of the sighted vessel. If the sighted vessel consents to be boarded by NAFUS inspectors, the findings of the inspectors are transmitted to all contracting parties and the flag state of the vessel. Furthermore, any previously sighted non-contracting party vessel entering a port of any NAFO contracting party shall not be allowed to land or transship any fish until an inspection of its documents, logbooks, fishing gear, catch on board, and any other matter relating to its activities in the regulatory area has been carried out by the authorized officials of the port state. Landings and transshipments of some species listed by NAFO are prohibited in all contracting party ports unless the vessel has established that they have been caught outside the regulatory area. Landings and transshipment of other species are prohibited unless they have been harvested in accordance with NAFO conservation and enforcement measures. Let me also now turn to another species which uh, is being protected uh, particularly under the existing regime, namely marine mammals. The Convention deals with marine mammals in Article 65 and Article 120. The first sentence of each provision essentially takes a negative attitude stating that state parties remain free to provide for higher protection and shall cooperate to that end. According to the second sentence of Article 65 and 210 of the Convention, states are under an obligation to cooperate in the conservation and management of marine mammals to the appropriate international organizations. This obligation extends to both exclusive economic zones and the high seas. The International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling whose adoption was originally motivated by economic reasons and only by economic reasons, presents a number of interesting features, including the fact that membership is not restricted to whaling states, but is open to non-whaling states as well. Membership thus represents both use and conservation interests in the resource. The International Whaling Commission is entrusted with the management of whales. However, states can opt out of the new management measures within 90 days. The amendments must be based on scientific data. In, the in 1982, the Commission adopted a moratorium uh, on whaling. When the International Whaling Commission proposed to establish a whale sanctuary in, in the Southern Ocean, namely on the high seas, member states disputed uh, the Commission's competence to take such action. The affirmative vote taken by the Commission is legally anchored in a dynamic interpretation of the constituent uh, treaty in the light of subsequent practice of states in various fora and of the Commission. Since the sanctuary is situated on the high seas, whaling states are bound to respect it only by virtue of the decision taken by the Commission. In addition, there are regional developments and development efforts to protect whales. Let me now turn to a rather modern aspect. The protection of marine living resources is not only mandated by Chapter 17 of Agenda 21, 
but also by the regime on the preservation of biological diversity enshrined in the Convention on Biological Diversity. This is one of the most discussed areas and may bring about significant modifications for the legal regime on the protection and preservation of the marine environment. Let me now turn to a different subject, namely the protection of the sea against pollution. Pollution of the oceans takes a heavy toll on marine resources. The Convention on the Law of the Sea devotes most of Part 12 to this issue. The Convention introduces a remarkable flexibility in this regard, permitting the progressive development of the law without the formal amendment of the Convention itself. The basic obligation is contained in Article 192 of the Convention, to which I have already alluded. It reads, States parties have the obligation to protect and preserve the marine environment. The, that obligation is unqualified. It applies equally in the territorial waters, the exclusive economic zone, and on the high seas. It even applies to the internal activities of states that impact upon the marine environment. States must cooperate in the implementation of that obligation. The types of potential pollution can be divided into several categories. Pollution from land-based resources is probably the most severe problem. It is regulated by Article 207 of the Convention, with enforcement provisions provided for in Article 213. Atmospheric pollution, which is largely land-based in its origin, is covered by Article 212 for the establishment of standards and 222 for enforcement. Pollution emanating from ships, whether from dumping or from maritime activities and accidents, is covered by Article 210 and 211 for the establishment of rules and 216 and 221 for enforcement. Pollution originating in seabed activities is governed by Articles 208 for activities within national jurisdiction and 209 for activities within the area which is under international jurisdiction, with enforcement measures primarily under Article 214 to 215. With the exception of the provisions relating to deep seabed, which is already subject to international jurisdiction, these provisions share several common characteristics. First, while they recognize leg legislative competence of individual states, that allocation of legislative jurisdiction is not unlimited. Rather, national law must be no less effective than international standards. Second, the Convention does not itself seek to define those standards, but leaves them to the evolutionary process of international organizations and, the diplomatic, and diplomatic conferences. Third, the Convention places an affirmative duty on states to seek to establish global original rules the progressive development of these standards can provide improved protection for marine resources. The Convention also recognizes changes in uh, enforcement patterns. Enforcement can be directed not only by the flag state of a vessel, but also by a coastal state or a port state. Land-based pollution in the Convention on the Law of Sea, uh, let me now turn to land-based pollution in particular. In the Convention on the Law of the Sea, the subject of pollution from land-based sources is dealt with in Articles 194, 207, and 213. Article 207 requires states to enact legislation to prevent, reduce, and control pollution. 
taking into account internationally agreed rules, standards and practices, and to participate in international organizations and um, diplomatic conferences to establish such rules. Article 213 calls on states to enforce applicable international as well as national environmental laws. Among the global treaties dealing uh, directly or indirectly with pollution from land-based sources or with coastal management are the Convention on Wetlands of international importance, especially as wat waterfowl habitat, Ramsar, 1971, the Basel Convention on the Control of Transboundary Movements of Hazardous Waste and their disposal of 1989, and the Convention on Bio Biological Diversity of 1992, which I've already mentioned. The global program of action for, protect, for the protection of the marine environment from land-based activities, adopted on uh, 3 November 1995, is an example of initiative developed on the international level. Most initiatives to limit land-based pollution have been, however, developed on the regional level. Let me now turn to the pollution from ship. The bulk of vessel source pollution results from routine operational discharges, such as washing cargo tanks or disposing of sewage and garbage. In contrast, despite the public prominence of incidents, such as the Exxon Valdez oil spill, marine casualties are responsible for less than a quarter of all vessel source pollution. States are required by the Convention, and particularly by Articles 211, 217, to establish international rules and standards to prevent, reduce and control pollution of the marine environment from vessels at the global level through the competent international organizations or a diplomatic uh, conference. Uh, and once they are generally but not necessarily by all accepted, to implement and enforce them at the national level. Flag states, national laws and regulations might at least have the same effect as that of generally accepted international rules and standards. The conventional norms define the minimum, not the maximum, of protection. Regarding the exclusive economic zone, Coastal states are bound more specifically to international standards as their national norms must correspond to the international standards. Article 211, paragraph 5. Regarding the territorial sea, norm that a coastal state applies to the design, construction, mining or equipment of vessels have to correspond to international standards. Uh, this is uh, enshrined in Article 211 and Article 21, Paragraph 2 of the Convention. The Convention thus rests the generally accepted standards with an effect ergo omnis. These standards determine the exercise of a coastal state's regulatory and enforcement competence, as well as the enforcement competence port states enjoy under the Convention. Uh, this is kind of a double-edged sword, for it works against the coastal states, the port states, and to a certain extent also gives guidance to the flag states. For that to be uh, the case, it is not necessary that the coastal, the port state, or the flag state have consented to, being, to be being bound by the particular standard. Rather, that's important to emphasize, it is sufficient but also necessary that the standard be elaborated in the right forum, namely the IMO, and be generally accepted, namely has entered into force. Such ergo omnis effect accrues at least among states' parties to the Convention on the Law of the Sea. 
example, the Convention incorporates by reference international standards for the protection of the marine environment established by competent international organization or diplomatic conference. Flag states have to implement such standards, whether they are members of the institution or not. This follows from the obligation under Article 211 of the Convention on the Law of the Sea to prescribe legislation at least as effective as the generally accepted standards. International law, developed mainly through the IMO, has established numerous standards relating to vessel source pollution. Discharge standards, construction, design and manning standards, and restrictions and regulations related to navigation can be distinguished. Primarily, the international rules and standards to prevent, reduce and control pollution of the marine environment from vessels are contained in the International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships of 1973 as modified by the Protocol of 1978. We therefore speak about the MARPOL 73-78 system. This fundamental agreement has been continuously adapted to changing circumstances. It covers all the technical aspects of pollution from ships, except the disposal of waste into the sea by dumping, which is covered by a different regime, and applies to ships of all types. The Convention has two protocols dealing respectively with reports on incidents involving harmful substances and arbitration, and several annexes which contain regulations for the prevention of various forms of pollution, namely pollution by oil, pollution by noxious liquid substances carried in bulk, pollution by harmful substances carried in packages, portable tanks, freight containers, or road or rail tank wagons, etc. Pollution by sewage from ships, and finally pollution by garbage from ships. Global rules to limit air pollution from ships are now included in a new annex, Annex Roman 6. Entirely based on guidelines has been the response to harmful aquatic organisms in ballast water, hazardous substances in ships or ship barks. A new and important feature of MARPOL is the concept of special areas, which are considered to be so vulnerable to pollution by oil, that oil discharges within them have been completely prohibited and to achieve that objective, navigation is restricted. These restrictions are defined by the bordering states in cooperation with IMO, depending whether these areas under the are under the jurisdiction of the coastal states concerned and the nature of the restrictions. The number of specially protected areas is continuously increasing. Let me now turn to a different aspect. There is also, uh, has been established a fund to cover uh, damages uh, resulting from oil spills. I refer to the Oil Pollution Preparedness Fund uh, of 1990 it is meant to provide a global framework for our international cooperation in combating major incidents or threats of marine pollution. Parties to the Convention have to take measures for dealing with pollution incidents, either nationally or in cooperation with other countries. Ships are required to carry a shipboard oil pollution emergency plan the contents of which are to be developed by IMO. Parties to the Convention are required to provide assistance to others in the event of a pollution emergency and provision is made for the reimbursement of any assistance provided. The Convention provides for IMO to plan an important coordinating role. The universal regime set up by IMO is implemented regionally or even nationally. 
The primary responsibility for the enforcement of international rules and standards lies with the flag state. Article 94 and 217 of the Convention require every state to ensure compliance with applicable international rules and standards by vessel flying their flag, irrespective of where the violation occurs. IMO improved flag state jurisdiction to the International Safety Management Coast Code. Coastal states may take preventive as well as repressive enforcement actions. Articles 25 and 219 of the Convention provide that coastal states have the right, in the case of ships proceeding to internal waters or a call of at, uh, at a port facility outside internal waters, to take the necessary measures to prevent any breach of the conditions to which admission of those ships to internal waters or such a call is subject. In the case of a ship which is passing to the territorial sea without calling at a port, the coastal state's enforcement action is limited to the enforcement of those national laws and regulations which have, uh, give effect to generally accepted international rules or standards on the design, construction, manning or equipment of ships, uh, uh, Article 21, Paragraph 2. Measures states can take include the inspection of vessels visiting ports to ensure that they meet IMO requirements regarding safety and marine pollution prevention standards, as well as the detention of vessels. Another me measure which some governments have resorted to is to bar entry into their ports to ships which do not comply with the code. Article 220 of the Convention empowers coastal states to take enforcement measures against vessels for violating violation of applicable standards which cause an effect in the exclusive economic zone. The coastal state enforces the international standards as well as its national implementation norms if such norms have been enacted. Such measures may be taken in the port in the territorial sea or in the exclusive economy zone. If a violation has led to a substantial discharge causing or threatening significant pollution by the marine environment, a physical inspection of the vessel may be executed. Uh, see Article 220, Paragraph 5 in conjunction with Article 226 of the Convention. Under MARPOL, any violation of MARPOL within the jurisdiction of any state party to the Convention is punishable under the law of that party. In this respect, the term jurisdiction in the Convention is to be construed in the light of international law in force at the time the Convention is applied or interpreted. Under the terms of the 1969 IMO Convention relating to the intervention on the high seas, states' parties are even empowered to act against a ship of another country which has uh, been involved in an accident or has been damaged on the high seas if there is a grave risk of oil pollution occurring as a result. This uh, action has been taken occasionally, but with rather limited effect. The Convention affirms uh, the right of a coastal state to take such measures on the high seas as may be necessary to prevent, mitigate or eliminate danger to its coastline or related interests from pollution by oil or the threat thereof following upon a maritime casualty. The coastal state is, however, empowered to take only such as action as is necessary and after due consultations with uh, appropriate interests, including in particular the flag state or states of the ships or ships involved in the, uh, the owners of the ships or cargoes in question and where circumstances permit independent expert appointed for this purpose. According to Article 218 of the Law of the Sea Convention, the port state 
repressively may institute proceedings in respect of any discharge from a vessel outside the internal waters, territorial sea or exclusive economic zone of that state in violation of applicable international rules and standards. It may do so upon request by the flag state or in case of effects to waters under its jurisdiction. Under the same conditions, port states may also act regarding violations that have occurred in waters under the jurisdiction of another state. Port state enforcement is preferable to coastal state enforcement since it interferes much less with freedom of navigation and can generally be performed more safely. The International Maritime Organization relies on ship owners' liability to enforce the standards adopted. There are two major instruments designed to compensate the victims of certain oil spills. Such liability would not only allow repairing environmental damage, but also create an incentive on the part of the ship owner to comply with the standards and take the required measures in order to avoid liability. The aim of the International Convention on Civil Liability for Oil Pollution Damage 1969 is to ensure that adequate compensation is available to persons who suffer oil pollution damage resulting from maritime casualties involving oil-carrying ships. Convention places a liability for such damage on the owner of the ship from which the pollution or polluting oil escaped or was discharged. Subject to a number of specific exceptions, this liability is a strict one. It may be limited. The 1992 protocol widened the scope of the convention to cover pollution damage caused in the exclusive economic zone of a state party. Under the International Convention on the Establishment of an International Fund for Compensation for Oil Pollution Damage, 1971, the fund is to pay compensation to states and persons who suffer pollution damage. If such persons are unable to attain a compensation from the owner of the ship from which the oil escaped, or if the compensation due from such owner is not sufficient to cover the damage suffered. Under the Fund Convention, victims of oil pollution damage may be compensated beyond the level of the ship's owner's liability. The Fund's obligation to pay compensation is confined to pollution damage suffered in the territories, including the territorial sea of states' parties. The fund is also obliged to pay compensation in respect of measures taken by a contracting state outside its territory. In connection with its second main function, the fund is obliged to indemnify the ship owner or his insurer for a portion of the ship owner's liability under the Liability Convention. The convention contains provisions on the procedure for claims, rights and obligations and jurisdiction. Let me now turn to dumping. Article 210 of the Convention deals with pollution from dumping and provides that national laws, regulations and measures shall be no less effective than the global rules and standards. According to art Article 211, however, such rules shall at least have the same effect as that of generally accepted rules and standards established through the competent international organizations or general diplomatic conferences. In practice, initiative on the global level lies exclusively with the International Maritime Organization. The regime of the London Dumping Convention has been considerably strengthened by the protocol the Convention adopted in 1996. The protocol, which amounts to the adoption of actually a new convention, pursues its sole objectives of protecting and preserving the medium marine environment for, from all sources of pollution due to dumping or incineration at sea by prohibiting the dumping of wastes within the exception of such wastes explicitly listed in Annex Roman 1. 
The dumping of listed wastes requires a permit. According to this provision, states parties shall pursue the precautionary approach to environmental protection from dumping of waste, take into account the polluter spray principle and regulate so as to not simply cause a transfer of dumping damage to the environment. States parties may adopt more stringent measures than those required under the protocol. Furthermore, in order to guide states parties in meeting the protocol's objective, elaborate annexes set out detailed regulatory model schemes on the issuance of permits as well as on the assessment of wastes or other matters that may be considered for dumping. The logo in the back. Okay, good. It's very nice. Very nice. Just waiting for the thumbs up. Ready? When I do security at sea, we should expose the logo of the Law of the Sea Tribunal. Mm. Do you want yeah. to do that? Yeah, we can do that too. I think they can be served whatever. Yeah? All right, sir, feel free to start whenever you would like. Um, and remember okay. to address, not just address the people in the audience. You don't have to sure. look directly into the camera. I look at this side or this side, whatever you Fantastic. prefer. Okay. My lecture this morning will be on legitimacy of international law from a legal per perspective. It will be an introduction. Perhaps you will not get all your questions, answers. Uh, you might like to get answered. The question of legitimacy of international law in general has to be subdivided into two, namely whether it's appropriate to raise the question of legitimacy in international law and if the answer is affirmative, what does legitimacy mean in the context of international law and where does it lead to? In recent years, the question concerning uh, the legitimacy of international law has been discussed, uh, discussed quite intensively. The focus of the questions raised varies considerably. Only some of the questions raised will be mentioned here. Such questions are, for example, is international law lacking legitimacy in general? Has international law or parts of it yielded to the facts of power? May adherence to international legal commitments be subordinated to self-defined national interests? Has international law or have particular rules of it, such as the prohibition of the use of force, uh, lost its power to induce compliance? And what is the relevance of non-enforcement or non-obedience for the legitimacy of that particular international norm. The fact that seemingly identical questions concerning the legitimacy of international law, or parts thereof, are being raised sometimes a camouflage that their authors represent different approaches towards international law and thus pursue different objectives. Although this may be considered an oversimplification, four such schools are being identified and addressed here. One school of thought argues that international law lacks legitimacy, at least if compared with the legitimacy of, of national democratic governance, and therefore less authoritative weight should be given to international law. This school of thought, which actually may be perceived as reviving ideas voiced by Carl Schmitt, and his school seems to be driven by the consideration that international law is uh, to be seen from the perspective of national law of national interests. The view of international relations by the school of Carl Schmitt is state-centered, international law being perceived as directly controlled by each single state. Another school of thought seems to argue that, due to global developments, international institutions should be remodeled with a view to increase or even establish their legitimacy to meet new global challenges by establishing organs 
which may exercise parliamentary and governmental functions, all by increasing the influence of NGOs. This developing is being seen as the institutional consequence of, of globalization. The objectives pursued by both schools of thought are diametrically opposed, since the former is concerned with the protection of the autonomy of democratically elected governments to act as required by states' interest, at least as they perceive their interest, whereas the latter intends to replace or to supplement national governance by democratically legitimate world institutions, such as a world government or world parliament. Nevertheless, they coincide in one point. Both have in common that they consider legitimacy of international law from the point of view of democratic legitimacy of national governance. Whether or to what extent this starting point is appropriate for international law is open for challenge. One may identify two further schools of thought. One school raises this question whether the legitimacy of international law with a view to enhance the acceptability of the latter. This school of thought is not concerned with the establishment of new international institutions, but rather with adapting the traditional means of norm developing and their content, determinancy, symbolic validation, coherence and adherence to the needs of a globalized world. The second school of thought in this context, actually the fourth one, uh, which considering modern and normative developments in international law as a form of international governance, advocates strengthening the national parliamentarian influence on the conduct of international relations, which is, I have to emphasize, traditionally thought to be the domain of the executive. This approach is inspired by the consideration that international law has reached, at least in some of its parts, a different quality which may be referred to as international governance. It perceives that governance undertaken on whichever level requires legitimacy. The two latter approaches sketched out here start from the same point of view, namely that certain parts of international law may have a legitimacy deficit. They seek to cure this deficit at different levels, though, where the first school of thought intends to improve the mechanisms of international law, the second one attempts to strengthen national legitimacy and the respective legitimacy chain parliament towards governments. Well, the approaches advocated by those two schools of thought are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They assess and approach an identified problem from different uh, sides and thus complement each other. My contribution will deal with two issues, thus hoping to contribute to the ongoing discussion. It will briefly summarize the reasons why it is possible to speak of the development of international governance, which is disputed, and thus why the quest for legitimacy of international law has become, and rightly has become, an issue. This is done without questioning the relevance of international law as law. On this basis, the contribution will discuss to what extent, proceeding from a model of legitimacy as developed over centuries for democratic national governments, is adequate for international law at all. Let me now turn to legitimacy and public international law based on state consent. The term legitimacy is being used differently, although it mostly means to refer to the justification of authority. The notion being understood with the equivalent of having the power to take binding decisions or prescribe binding rules. Such decisions or rules may be general or specific in nature, 
the distinction may be of relevance for their legitimacy. Different approaches are discussed concerning the elements which may induce legitimacy of a particular authority. Theoretically, they may be source, procedure, or result-oriented, or a combination thereof. Let me explain that. Authority can be legitimated by its source of origin. For public international, legitimacy rests, at least to, according to the traditional view, in the consent of states concerned. According to this view, international law is based upon the assumption that states have the possibility to negotiate and to adhere to international agreements. By doing so, they accept obligations vis-a-vis -vis the other partners to that agreement or vis-a-vis -vis a larger community, such as the Law of the Sea Treaty. They also have the possibility to commit themselves unilaterally. Authority can also be legitimized by uh, the decision in question are taken in procedures considering to be adequate or fair. Rules concerning the composition or establishment of an institution and its rules governing decision-making processes are to be seen from this point of view. Procedures or rather adhering to a pre-agreed procedure thus has a legitimizing effect in international law as it has in national law. In that respect, the two sets of rules don't differ at all. In this respect, it is to be mentioned that legitimacy may be also depend on who participates in the decision-making process. For example, when professional judges considered expert opinions in their decision-making process, which is possible, this may increase the objective legitimacy of a judgment. Whereas opening up proceedings to allow interested third parties to participate in the form of amicus curiae briefs or by in intervention, may increase the subjective legitimacy of a decision. Finally, it has been argued that authority can be legitimized or delegitimized by the outcome of its, uh, it produces. This is a crucial and perhaps a very critical issue and an issue which deserves future further considerations.